Hi, welcome to this episode of the Task Podcast. So I'm here with uh, Matt Yoxall, Mr. Yoxall. How are you doing? I'm fine. You can call me Dr. Yoxall if you like. <laughs> I'm I, not, not that I'm pulling on, on the social hierarchy because we're in Asia or anything like that. I forgot. Yeah, sorry, Dr. Yoxall. I should have my <laughs> I should have my notes taken. So um, just some context. Uh, we're, we're sitting in a room in a house in, in Chiang Mai. Um, we, we both live kind of over the road from each other um we met uh, probably a year not even a year ago actually on a plane from singapore so two expats living in chiang mai doing work um in singapore maybe, maybe with the same uh, name yeah maybe you'd just like to explain a little bit yeah with the same name just a little bit about you know what you do today professionally um and then i'll drill down on some of that and yeah. talk about some specifics okay it's probably good in some ways to work backwards with stories about how we end up in a certain place and uh, doing a certain thing. So we met on that flight. I was coming back from Singapore because I had just finished a key piece of corporate training work where I'm using my skills as a storyteller and a theatre person to teach execs, you know, how to practice being present and in communication, in leadership, but also how to develop their presentation skills and things like this. So a lot about communication and presentation and performance at work. So uh, I just finished that, but that's sort of a relatively new gig for me. Um, being in Singapore is not because I did my PhD there over a period of sort of six years and I lived there for a couple of years and I'm being there on and off, right? So... Uh, Kind of returning back to Chiang Mai, though, uh, together because, yeah, I've lived here for 15 years and I've done a lot of work with NGOs, uh, international organisations. I've worked for the UN um, and I work with government departments a lot, too. I'm going to drill down on some of that stuff, but I, I just before we get into that, you started off in theatre, right, in the UK? Yes. Uh, did you? Tell yes, me a bit I about did. That. I I'm did. interested. I love the theatre. <laughs> I, lo- I love the theatre. Oh, he likes a good story. Um, <laughs> he loves a good story. Um, yeah, so do I. I mean, that's why I'm in the business, right? It's my job. Uh, but, um, yeah, actually, I did, what on, I did in, as a kid... As, on as the stage a, or in, in back? Well, is it... the scenes or what? I think, you know, when we're, we're young, we often do... We have a natural talent for something. We show an interest in something. We often end up abandoning it for different reasons. But the thing I loved to do when I was a kid was I loved to tell stories and write stories. Um, but I also did a lot of theatre. Um, and it helped me uh, as, a, as a person, as a human being, in different ways... Um, and uh, so I kind of I'm naturally sort of drawn to it this funny thing happened when I was a little kid my mum put me on stage and I was carrying a very big dragon's tail over my shoulder through the local village hall on the night of the first performance Um, and I was huffing and puffing and I think I'd been told to do this by the director but people were laughing and it was dark and I could feel everybody looking at me and I could see the stage in the distance Uh, so I came down this kind of tunnel of people the sort of central aisle towards the stairs going up onto the stage and I thought oh what would happen if I if I like throw myself on the floor so I'm huffing and puffing and up I go and I throw myself on the floor and of course everybody laughs hugely and of course later my mum's like oh my god I didn't know that you were told to do that and the director was like I never told him to do that it was all improvisation I think in that moment you know I learned what it was like to have people's attention on you 
Um, but I also learned that what you do in that special space is that you can also affect the way people feel. Um, I mean, just, I think you just learned that at quite a young age and I, I can pin it down to that moment. In fact, yeah. you know, a really important moment in, in my life in different ways. So I just went on to be involved in theater in different ways. And eventually well, I went to university to study it in London in my early twenties. Um, and then, and also a graduate degree in performing arts, which I did in my mid sort of twenties. So and the UN's a long jump from theatre. Typically, how do you, you end up? Well, how do you end up working for like yeah big international organisations? Yeah. Well, uh, so I kind of finished a degree in theatre, Middlesex University. We were taught to do everything, you know, how to make a costume, how to hang the lights, you know, how to direct a piece of performance work. I did a lot of stage management, but I also. Uh, was doing a lot of physical theatre and a lot of, at the end, a lot of storytelling. And um, so while I was making this kind of very offbeat, kind of bizarre ex- experimental theatre at night time in, you know, sort of deep, sort of darkest parts of Homerton and Hackney and places like this, yeah. um, I was making, I started, you know, I had to find a way to make money. Um, and I got a job working in a museum, teaching, doing kind of workshops for kids yeah. around sort of museum objects and it just turned out to be the best job I could have ever dreamed to have had at that moment in my life and I had an absolutely visionary boss who you know was really interested in what I could do and helping me develop because I was living in that community too and she gave me a lot of space to try things out um and one summertime she said okay we've got to go on the road for two weeks we've got this outreach project um, and we've got to go around the community. Can you do it? And I said, yeah, of course I can do it. She said, okay. Uh, and oh my God, what am I going to do? And <laughs> she said, okay, so what are you going to do? And I'm like, what am I going to do? And I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm going to dress up as the museum founder and, uh, I'm going to like show up and be an absolute idiot about museum objects. I'm going to know nothing about them. And I'm going to get everybody to tell me what they are. Awesome. And she said, okay, brilliant. What's it going to be called? I'm like, Mr. Horniman's Grand Tour. So I worked at the Horniman Museum in Forest Hill, if that's familiar to anybody who ever listens to this recording. Um, and, and so this sort of Carolyn Roberts, this, this kind of really brilliant uh, community sort of development person working in the museum, she gave me space to try stuff out. And I learned a lot about culture. I learned a lot about making culture. I learned a lot about how people learn. I learned about how different groups relate to one another and how they relate to ideas about culture and learning and museums and all kinds of stuff uh, during this job. And, and, and one of the things that happened was uh, the museum got lottery funding, £13 million, pounds, yeah. to develop itself based on the part of London it was in. Back then it was considered a, so, a socially sort of deprived part of London. Now it has the no, East no, London no. line. Now it's yummy <laughs> mummies and it's very hipster. Yeah. So those days are long gone. But those people, those rich people who live there now have a beautiful new museum that they can get their three-wheeled buggies into. I don't know what happened to everybody else. They're probably living in Penge or, <laughs> some, I don't know, fucking Croydon or wherever, further out Zone 6. But... Um, you know, uh, that, that time when they, the lottery money came, um, they knocked down the education block. And, you know, my boss said, OK, can you just do what you just did again? But can you take it on the road? And I, and I did for a couple of years. So I drove around London in a transit van with a stuffed fox and a badger and um, a top hat. 
basically playing an idiot who didn't know anything about all this stuff that had come into his house. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I got people to tell me about it. And I, and I told them stories about the objects too. So, I, I mean, I always go back to telling this story a little bit when people ask me because it's, it's in that moment where I learn so much of what I use now. So if you looked at what I was doing then and yeah. a video of me doing that when I was 25... 20, 26 years old, I was young, and I can see in my body, I can see the technique from, from drama school, my training. But if you look at what I do now, yeah. I, I'm still doing a lot of the same stuff because on a fundamental level, uh, you know, it's to be effective with kind of using theatre and storytelling and working with groups of people and building relationships. It's, it's fairly straightforward, some of the things you need to do making them actually happen yeah and being good at it for sure it you, you need some natural capacity but you also and, and a love for other people but also over time you get better at it to the point where a corporate entity in singapore will pay thousands of pounds for your company to fly you in and and do that it's, with them it, storytelling is i mean storytelling is generations old right but actually it's interesting because in the last it's probably, I don't know, in, in recent times, in the last 10 years, it seems to have become a really hot topic in the corporate space in terms of using... It's not like people weren't using stories before to sell products, to motivate staff, to run a business, but it now is being recognised as a, a tool that can be taught, I think. Previously, it seemed to be something that people thought, oh, I'm, I'm either good at that or I'm not good at yeah. that, and now they recognise it as something that can be honed. You pay some something that you pay somebody else to do, like you know, an advertising firm, for example, or whatever it is yeah. that you do. But, of course, telling, being able to tell a story um, and being able to tell a story kind of with, you know, more than one person collaboratively is a creative skill. But I think you're right. People have recognised that you can, you can learn it. I wouldn't say that you, I'm really teaching people to learn how to tell stories. I, I think people are already hardwired to do it. And, and they tell a great story, story normally immediately when you ask them to talk about what they're passionate about, mm -hmm. what they care about most in the world. Somebody can stand up in front of a group of, of, of people they don't know and speak about that because they're committed to it. Um, and this is kind of getting probably more towards some of the, the content we might cover in yeah. terms of what you're doing with task and, and, and how it relates to some of my own work. But yeah, I think, you know, we're hardwired to do it, to tell stories. It's natural um, to us. I think that sometimes like a fear of public speaking and ideas of what a public is and, and, and what it means to be looked at and be heard actually rather than being enabling uh, it's often the reverse it stops yeah. people doing things that they need to say in front of other people it shuts them down because of the kind of judgments that get made around sort of who should talk and when and, and speaking in public i think you know living in asia most of my adult life i mean i left the uk when i was 27 yeah. it was in 2001 right so i'm just about to be 45 now so it's a good stretch of time you know that that Telling stories, playing, magic, ghosts, all of that stuff, it's all alive here still yeah, right. in people's hearts and minds. And so they take to that sort of work very well. And I'm talking about, you know, working with NGOs, um, particularly uh, three years on, on, on projects about counter-trafficking. So working in shelters with kids who have been trafficked and then young women 
who've been trafficked to um, Southeast Asia, and then well, Cambodia, Thailand, and Laos specifically, and then going over to work for a year on a UN project in the refugee camps on the Thai-Burma border about refugee resettlement. But the way the power relations happen there with humanitarianism on where it's this kind of global or very strong geopolitical focus, um, yeah, I just was very uncomfortable with the way that rolled so out. So can we... I, I just want to pick up on something. Can yeah. you, in terms of... Um, we're doing some stuff in trafficking now, yeah. some work on the tech side, but... When you talk about trafficking, storytelling, you just go into what what that means. I mean, people, I don't think people would understand the value okay. of storytelling in, in those types of um, environments. So, yeah, it'd be good to, to know a bit, little bit more about that. Okay, so I'll give you some sort of clear examples. Yeah. So one of the things that we were asked to do um, was to help teachers and social workers who are working with the kids. Um, and so uh, me and my a friend of mine... We kind of developed a training where we shared a whole range of activities. Some were were, were games. Uh, some of them were about specifically about storytelling, and some of them were about role play, um, acting out. And uh, you know what we were doing was we were offering the activities to the staff to use them in as many different ways as they could in relation to their job. So these are staff working for an NGO that are dealing with trafficked individuals? Trafficked children. Trafficked children. children. So, for example, there was a government reception centre, which was full of maybe had about 60 children living there who had been trafficked and returned mainly from Thailand to Cambodia. And... That's the reception centre. Now, the kids come in there and then they, after time, they may get either sent home if it's safe for them to go home. If they know where the home is or their social workers can find their home, they've forgotten how to speak Khmer, a lot of them. Um, They've forgotten where they came from. Um, You know, another adult who wasn't a family member maybe took them uh, over the border and, and, and they were undocumented. So tracing where they come from is very difficult. And then they sometimes get sent to live in NGOs. Uh, houses and, and shelters around. So the government and the local NGOs work together. So when you put those that kind of community into one space, that's a lot of children, and it's a lot of a lot of staff. Um, so this would kind of create a situation where we were able to work together, and we taught all these kind of drama and theatre-based activities. So it can be around playing a game where you need to get 50 children. You've got one staff member responsible for 50 kids. And you've got to get them all washed and clean and into their school uniforms. And you've got like an hour to do it. How do you do do that? You know, so if you turn that going to, to the wash house into a game and different kids at different moments and different days get to lead that game you get a better level of buy-in. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's about crowd control and kind of m- managing kind of thing, everyday activities and making them more fun for everybody. Um, so it might be something like, like that. Um, it might be that, you know, a whole, you know, a new kid comes into the shelter. So you have the kids who are already there will all be organised and they'll play a bunch of name games and they'll run them themselves, you know, eventually when they've learnt them. And... Games that are all about uh, getting introduced to where you all live and how you live together, for example, and and what some of the rules are. Uh, Another thing is, you know, a kid arrives and nobody knows where they've come from and they can't really explain it. So a social worker might 
sit with them and they might draw a storyboard Mm -hmm. and in six pictures they'll ask them to draw their journey out of Cambodia to try and work out where they ended up and they might then draw another six pictures of the journey back to find out how they feel now this so you know there's two things so that's about part of that's practical part of that's emotional right yeah and because the social workers need to know something about the experiences that the kids have and there needs to be a structure for doing that and asking questions you know face to face unless you've already developed of quite a strong relationship it's quite difficult but if you put it down and around some pictures sometimes sometimes that can work i mean the outcomes are variable, but, but these are the stuff the staff need to do, and they need to gather this information quickly, so they want to... And there are all kinds of games about, you know, like, like about the future, what, how you, things want, you want things to be in your life, and this is a way for the kids to express what their desires are, what their needs are yeah. for the social workers to, to do that. Um, and, you know, role-playing, for example, being able to pretend that you're somebody else for example you're going home to live with your parents and you haven't seen them for three years um and one of them trafficked you but there's an arrangement where you can go home um what do you want that first conversation to be like what are the things you want to say as an 11 year old to those people how do you want that to happen like rehearsing that with a social worker letting them where the social workers enroll as one of the parents, for example, yeah. or, an, or an auntie or an uncle or a grandma, whoever it is, a brother, you know, so they, that allow that... Third, third person kind of work, third person workshopping to, to help someone kind of deal, well, to create... To prepare. Or to prepare yeah, yeah, to prepare for a, a potentially, you know, challenging emotional kind of event. You know, so there's all kinds of different ways that you can use that's, that's a psychosocial tool um some of it's for experiential learning some of it's for team building some of it is for you know creative thinking and also for critical thinking let me just just take a step back because i I know our listeners and actually i don't to use that as an example so children being trafficked so these are kids that have been trafficked and are then um looked after by ngos and then taken back to where they came from what are they being trafficked for? Or? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the kinds of situations that kids were ending up in in Bangkok at that time. And let's just be clear about this, too. Yeah. Like, 15 years ago, the situation around the trafficking of children in Cambodia was incredibly serious. Yeah. Things have changed considerably in the last 15 years, too. So um, what I'm saying now is is about how things were then in 2004. Three, oh, okay. okay, not 2019. It's things have ch- have changed a lot, and I have spent time in Phnom Penh recently, over the last year or so, and it's phenomenal to me how much things have changed inside the country in the last sort of 15 to 20 years. But um, at that time, yes, it was about children who were being taken over the border yeah. to work um, or to to make money. Some of it was like begging, some of it was domestic work, and some of it, you know, and at times they were doing sex work and things like this too. There's a whole mixture of so things. you see some of this here still now, especially on the... I mean, you see some kids down south doing that are run by, um, uh, you know, racketeering rings, like doing yeah. selling flowers. Does this still exist <clears throat> or is it been rel- pretty much eradicated or uh good quite good i know you're not the ngo yeah so i know so, not and i'm, so and I I'm not uh, in that 
in that field like you know it's interesting isn't it because i think i worked on that the human trafficking um for a period of time and i learned a lot about it at that moment yeah then i was working in an immigration detention center and around hiv issues and i learned a lot about that and then refugee yeah. worlds so you kind of move on and you you develop a, a general sets of understandings about the work but you don't always keep up to date with exactly what's happening with the field that you you were in at that time you're, so we're still doing stuff on the on the borders right because well you were up there recently yeah the the stuff i would say with with yes i would think about about human trafficking yes i think it's still going on yes i think kids are being exploited all the time i think young women are being exploited but i i think that there's a much greater level of awareness um and the economic situation in most of the countries in the region has changed where they're they're more industrialized and there's more work at home yeah so when you look at like for example going to work on the border where there was 150,000 refugees from Burma, yeah. but there was also 150,000 migrant workers probably too living in Mersad who had come over, and you know things are changing in Burma. So, you, but you were up on the border doing stuff recently. What, what's the difference? Weren't you? On, uh, I was uh, on a border. Yes, I was. You're right. Yeah, what, but I wasn't what, on how the, the workshop. Change is there work that you do up there now? Is it different? Yeah, it is because I've, I'm working on a different border. Okay. It's all right. No, it's a very, very good question. I didn't do my research. We don't need to. You, you. We were talk. I was talking about a border, yeah. but um, but actually, it's a it's a very useful mistake because uh, I used to work on the Thai Burma border. Um, there were about one hundred and fifty thousand people in nine official refugee camps there, but you know, all across there were there were smaller camps too that were not recognised in the same way, but there were displaced people living there on both sides, on the Thai side and the Burma side. Um, so, uh, you know, more recently, since things changed in Burma politically, in the last few years, this kind of steps towards democracy, a lot of the funding has come away from the refugee camps. Mm. This is a problem because the fighting hasn't stopped, in fact. And you can't really be a democracy when you've got refugees living outside your border. You've got a problem, right? And they haven't managed to fix that. Uh, but they're not allowing new people to register and haven't been... Uh, since I think November 2007 it's a long time so many people in the refugee camps you know they're not entitled to food and support um, and those communities are having to split what they're still getting to what is still a very large community of people who are kind of under pressure to move back to either a place that they fled from because they were burnt out or chased out by soldiers um, or you know, uh, they in a place they were never born in because so many people were born in the camps now. They've been there for more than 30 years. So, you you know, that situation, though, with all the funding from the humanitarian train and the development industries pouring over into Myanmar, as it now is, yep. you know, uh, that, that money has gone away from that community. Um, and... You know, I often work in, in that field. I've been working in that field too. And money for theatre projects. Well, where does that come from? Um, I, I have some friends who make theatre in in Yangon. But they travel around Burma. And they work with different groups of people. So the last job I did, it was actually, it was about migration. But it was about labour migration. And I was in Chin State, working next to the border with India. So... Uh, and that was doing theatre. That was theatre. That was making a show about safer migration because equally that part of the country 
has had it's in right up in the mountains um, difficult to grow things the roads are unsurfaced there's no industry there's not a lot of infrastructure the government has basically ignored the people there for for decades um, and not given them a lot of support and because of that and with you know changes in in culture around um, work getting an education um, material needs and desires um, and the increases in the cost of living you know half of the people of chin state live outside half of them about half of them are migrant workers yeah so you know how do and many of them of course are young so for sort of you've got a lot of young women for example traveling away from home to places they've never been before without any experience sometimes to a foreign country it's like how do you do that safely and you know this is based on you know many situations where people have gone and they have worked and made money and come back and their neighbors and their communities have seen that and so they want that they want a new house they want a concrete house they want a motorbike or you know they want they want to be able to pay for a sick person to go to the hospital whatever it is that they they need in their life you know some food security (laughs) um but you know then of course another person will go and you know they can get ripped off uh they you know, maybe they they suffer some kind of abuse by their employer overseas and, you know, they don't really know how to address that. So what do you kind of do? Um, one of the major things is people go to make money. So how do you manage your money? How do you make sure you send it back, the right people get it at the other end, that they save it, they don't spend it all, that they know what you want to happen with that money? So all kinds of stuff. So how does theatre how do, how does fit into this? That's what interests me. Like, um, when you're up there, what is the premise of is it just community theater or is it with a focus to build awareness education well i'd say it's professional theater because the actors are paid (laughs) Um, and so were we um but we did yeah we created and we worked for a local ngo but you're doing it in english no oh Uh, the show was in three different languages and we had two different companies and they went to a hundred villages in the center in the north of chin state so I think doing, tw- you, you're doing it in Thai. Are you in- well, no, I'm working. I'm working in English. Okay. Because yeah, yeah, because my my friends who are Burmese speak English, who I work with, but also Burmese is not the local language in Chin State, and yeah. like with the second group of actors, they didn't really speak much Burmese at all. So we have to have a Chin a local Chin translator. Yeah. She's not just translating for the white guy. She's translating for the guys from Yangon, for the Burmese guys, because they're probably what, more noticeably foreigners crowd? than I am. There's lots of white missionaries around Chin State. And, and you do this in theatres or you do it outside? So, so, built. I looked at some of the photos, I think. It looked like you had, if I remember rightly, it looked like there were kind of purpose-built areas for the, uh, for the show. Okay, so the, 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 about the project, yeah. we basically had auditions yeah. um, and we recruit like uh four actors three three young women one young guy and it's and a technician and we create a company and they tell a story about you know young chin people wanting to migrate um and some of the issues they face and how they go through that decision um so a lot of it's about decision making yeah you know how you make that decision or getting more information so we'll give some of that information through the story 
but we also try to show people where they can go to get that information. Yeah. But it's not just like in NGO, ABC, one, two, three, here's a plague, do it like this, your life will be better, migration will be safer. Because we're not promoting migration <laughs> either. Because, you know, migration is it, how people in Chin State with getting money in some ways. But it's also destroyed, like, a culture of sustainable farming. People become dependent on remittances. You know, communities lose all their young people. It's like there's lots of impacts and, and effects of migration so we also want to ask that question through the play what does migration do for chin state but what does it do to chin state as well well that's what we were doing and we were having a situation where at the end of the play the actors have a conversation with the audience and it becomes more participatory and they go down into the audience they ask them questions and you know trying to create a dialogue around that and actually asking where you've got two young people on the stage who haven't decided if they should migrate or not, asking the audience in front of them, what should we do? Asking the audience to give them wow. ad advice and then have a conversation about that. So it's Interactive theatre, pretty much. means these actors need to be really quite skilled by the time they go on the road. And they are young. They're in their early 20s, mid-20s. And so when I was telling you about all the things I learned, when I was dressing up as Mr. Horniman with my fox and my badger, I'm like, I know what that did for me, right? And I think it's doing the same kinds of things for these young guys. Um, so we're creating new companies of theatre makers, uh, new audiences. We don't think there's been a touring show that's been out through Chin Towns like this before, uh, from what our, the Chin, our Chin colleagues told us. Um, but the first play, more than 20,000 people have seen it. So... Is it is it community theatre? Is it a, is it professional work? Uh, how do you judge if it's a good play by the impact, uh, by the aesthetics? I don't know by how many people saw it. Like if you make any play anywhere in the world and you get twenty thousand people to see it, you'd be pretty happy. Definitely these days. Yeah, yeah. right. And 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 that's just the first there's, tour. The second tour is on the road now. And by the end of that, we should have. Probably 35,000 people would something to be said these days for doing theatre in places where people have less smartphones and less dis distractions. Yeah. I'm assuming that you didn't have an audience of individuals who kept getting distracted by Instagram and, and right. vi videoing your performance. Our, our, I might be wrong. But... Our actors do because we have 4G in all the towns <laughs> okay. that we do the rehearsals in. But on the road, yeah. um, most of the communications masts have gone up. So the, the internet is there. The roads are not surfaced still. That's the problem. Okay. So getting around from one village to another with, you know, we had money for this project. So uh, uh, unusually, so we bought lights and, and, and proper sound equipment and things like this, but that's heavy. So getting through like at the end of the rainy season, getting from one place to another is tough. And you asked about the venues. I mean, they basically show up and each village or small town, you know, will have you just the largest church that's going to be the performance right, venue. Okay. And it normally has something akin to a stage. Um, you know, Chin people are fabulous singers, they're great dancers, and they have all these kinds of traditions of performance on their own terms. So we're trying to weave that into the, the theatre making through the actors, and every time they go to a new community, they ask their people to come up, the young people to perform or do something with them on stage so that there's some kind of a, exchange in cool that stuff. way. Sounds good. It's been very interesting Sounds rewarding, i imagine so yeah I, I mean seeing them get out on the road and be independent running the show themselves um 
remembering what that did for me and how that felt and the skills it gave me, I'm, yeah, I'm really, I feel very happy about it. And, and, you know, I worked with, you know, a group of Bama, ethnic Bama, Burmese Buddhists in a Chin Christian community. The cultural politics of that say this should be really problematic. Um, we had a Chin boss. He was a great guy. We all got on very well. And I think we love the teams that we created and I think they loved us back. And we, you know, we constantly messaging all the time. So, it, you know, this says something about the peace process in Burma. Like, people can work together across ethnic and religious lines. Sure, I think what we see in the media is often different to what the reality of what's going on. Yeah, and I think, you know, we can, if we gather around a story and we all listen... Mm-hmm. You know, we we can find out what's unique about one another, yeah. but we can also find out what's the same. Um, and those are, that's a brilliant way to connect. So I think when you make theatre and you t- try to work out what's the story you want to tell together and how you're going to tell it together, um, you know, naturally, you know, the relationships you build with one another are very deep. For sure. And, and they're strong, you know. You don't see people for a long time but then suddenly you might do 10 years later and someone's on the road and they'll run up to you and they'll just give you a hug because that one workshop you did with them is so very memorable or, you know, something you laughed about or something happened. And, it, yeah. I want to touch on something different. Buddhism, you just mentioned it then. I know, I think when we first spoke, we, like we met on a plane, as we just said. And yeah. I think we chatted for three hours without stopping till the plane landed no never did we do that <laughs> but one of the um, <laughs> you you more than me yeah oh yeah <laughs> you didn't say anything it was all me um one of the things you we uh, one of the things you talked about was your i think it was your thesis if, if i'm right um that you were working on and might still be working on as part of your phd is that right and yeah. it was it incorporated buddhism the middle way I, I'm going to try and explain it, and I don't know, right. but, but I'm going in the right direction. But maybe you if, you wanna, if, you, if you want to kind of expand on that, because it was an interesting subject. Yeah. Um, you know, I've personally been in, kind of involved in, in Buddhist circles and find it interesting, and I know we kind of shared some stuff on that. But, yeah, inter- interesting to dive into that a bit more. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I finished, so I finished my PhD in 2016, and I graduated. That was why I was cheeky about saying I'm not a mister, I'm a doctor. Um, but yeah, I love to play that up because I don't kind of take it all that seriously either. Um, I didn't ever think I'd, I'd end up in a university in Singapore. I didn't think that a PhD was ever something I'd probably ever manage to get through because you have to sit down and write. It left me really focused. Um, but, um, I did it. I told a story that I wanted to tell and I told it, you know, it's uh, what I hope is good academic storytelling in the end. Um, and that story you know, was about the reason that I really went to do the PhD in the first place. And that was one around one central research question, which, which is, you know, for people who do this kind of theatre work, this socially engaged theatre work in different communities and around the region is like, you know, why do we do it? Why do we do this work? And what motivates it? And then what shapes it? So, you know, I spent all that time you know, 18 months of field work where I just followed my friends around, my Thai friends and my friends from Burma who were Burmese and Korean and Shan and, you know, from different groups, ethnic nationalities there. And, you know, and, and I thought about, I went back to the border and I talked to people there again and I thought about some of my own work. Um, why do I do it? Why do we do it? 
um, and, and, and what's it about? You know, I used to think my politics was soft or I didn't have any because I wasn't some like radical kind of, I don't know, lefty from, I don't know. I mean, I joined the Labour Party when I was 15, but, you know, because that seemed like a good idea. I used my ID to get into nightclubs. People thought I was 18. Um, but, uh, you know, I wasn't a really ideological um, politically speaking and uh, you know I was kind of brought up with a kind of fair is fair kind of deal with that at home and I think though what I you know I've what I've experienced you know uh, I guess in terms of my own disenfranchisement maybe as a gay guy growing up 40 years ago 45 years ago in a small village what that was like some of the things I experienced and seeing kind of what happens to other sort of marginalised people and... But I think just generally as a human being, you know, because I've also had a lot of, of, of privilege in different ways too. I've had a lot of opportunities. But just kind of seeing people sad, seeing people, you know, suffering, um, you know, it, that, you know, I have compassion, <laughs> you know, for that. I in, And I have empathy. Um, and I think all my friends here do too. And at the heart of Buddhism is to understand the nature of suffering and that, and that to not to cling to that suffering too, because all things are impermanent and they change all of the time. Um, but, but also to be compelled when you see that suffering, to have compassion and want to alleviate it somehow. So I think that what I always started to realise is we all had this in common, was it wasn't very complicated, um, actually, although we can put it within the Buddhist context, that we see that suffering and so, we see an imbalance in the world, a sort of disharmony, and so we can use sometimes theatre as a way to address so you're, that. So, you are, so you're doing a... So just to retrace it, you're doing a theatre, you're doing a, sorry, PhD in theatre studies. Theatre studies. You're then, you're then following friends, you know, you're doing research, following people around, you're then realising the whole kind of suffering, empathy, uh, um, compassion, compassion, all these different elements that then leads to writing what a a paper or. Well, I wrote, I wrote a complicated book about it. That's what a PhD thesis is. Um, Is there a title? Yes. It's called, Making theatre discerning silences, okay. engagements with social change in Burma, Myanmar, and Thailand. The, I, you know, I decided to look at different types of silence because I think the idea of voice and giving voice is a very Western liberal political idea, and it's an export, or or, or as it is an import, often into environments where you know actually ideas about silence are perhaps more powerful hmm. and a better way to start to think through what's going on in a social situation or as someone like a sociologist like, like Irving Goffman would say, what's happening here? You know, we ask those questions. You know, so I was looking at different types of silence that were occurring in the theatre-making environment or in relation to the social issue that that theatre was trying to address. And you find that there's lots of different types of silence occurring sometimes at the same when time. You, when you say different, I mean, when... I, don't, I may be wrong, but when you say different types of silence, are you talking about the intention behind the silence itself? Because, I mean, silence is silence, right? Or, or are you, yeah, can you define, well, can you can, define different types yeah, of silence? Yeah, it can. You can be in a room where there seems to be very little noise. It's very quiet and it has a particular impact on you. If you walk into a room and there are 30 people in that room and none of them are speaking that also has a very particular impact. 
But the nature of that silence depends on their reason for not speaking. They could be in meditation, yeah. It could be because there's somebody in a military uniform standing in front of them, staring at them. <laughs> and in actual fact, given some of the things that have happened politically in the region, without being too specific, it could be both of those things, that people are being forced to, to meditate, <laughs> to reflect on, you know, what's a good person and good behaviour. <laughs> Who knows, right? But the point is... Very you, interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the environment sometimes speaks of a certain kind of silence i mean you know there's those ideas about oppression and and not speaking and, and not being able to speak but also silence as a choice like the right to remain silent for example or you know just that moment of reflection where there's no talking it's but it's you know silence and, and pauses are speech they are communicating things all the time and when you, what I found was when I started to hang them together, you know, they would create a picture of the social world that was very different to one if I was saying, where's the voice and who's speaking and who's not speaking? And when I started to focus on the silences, I got a very different kind it, of It's fascinating as well, because we think that the voice and the noise defines the environment, whereas it's actually the space between that also defines it and... I mean, I think you taught me a lesson with this just recently, <laughs> suggesting I shut up that? in a certain situation. <laughs> and by doing that, I learned, you know, and it's not that it was something I didn't know, but you sometimes get caught up in your own voice, right? And, and you know, don't give the situation voices from elsewhere, which can create a completely different reality from, mm. from what's going on. So, you, yeah, I mean, it sounds contradictory, but you can let the silence speak back yeah, for to sure. you. You hear things in that moment of stillness and quiet that you can't hear when it's one of of noise, of volume. Um, God, the world is so bloody loud all the time. You know, just trying to go somewhere where it's it's quiet. Um, you know, particularly like free from technology and things like this. When I started travelling twenty five years ago as an eighteen year old. Um, you know, I went to India. There were no telephones to call home. There were no computers. Um, there were not many foreign cars. And, you know, you wrote airmail. And you did this thing called post-restant. Do you know post-restant? Oh, well, yeah, I, I maybe mentioned it. Yeah. around the same time. But you have yeah. a go to the post office That's and right, they hand you a huge box full of letters addressed to different foreigners. And if you're lucky, there's one in there from your friend or your mum. Because you said, <laughs> I'm going to be in Jaipur, at, like, in April... And, you know, OK, so she's got, like, to send it six weeks before you arrive and hopefully it'll be there when you get there. So it's a very... I feel very lucky that I had a chance to sort of travel the world at that moment, you know, just prior to that massive shift around smart, around technology, mobile technology and, and smart technology. So, you know, we have to work, work with it. But, I mean, in terms of uh, silences now, you know, that's kind of interesting at the same time because people are not talking either. They're not communicating because they're, they're constantly connected to the interface of their phone, not, you know, face-to-face -face with, with one another. And that's another massive challenge that we've got to face. So, you know, with your project, how we use, like, smart technology to get people communicating, sharing ideas and data and things like this, you know, it's really, really important. Otherwise, you know, those you know, those kind of palm pilots, they just going to drive us around endlessly without 
yeah, they're well, being not, reducing it, more and more of the meaning from our it's lives. Certainly it's certainly not, not something that's going away, right? I mean, it's, no. there are, you know, you can't kind of bury your head in the sand. And, and I mean, I, I've noticed my own behaviour of how much I look at my phone and, you know, I'm distracted by it and I kind of have to make decisions to, you know, put tech physically in, an, in another place to, to kind of break free from it. But, um, <coughs> but yeah, it's not yeah. going away and there's huge benefits at the same time, but it's, it's yeah. I think the benefits are still probably as a percentage, a lot less than the, the negative um, feedback that we get through technology right now, uh, which is yeah. something hopefully that will change, but yeah. Well, I think that's what kind of coming back to the idea of the middle way is like, it's not necessarily one of compromise or, or kind of being passive. It can be a really active thing, but it's about achieving some kind of balance. So things get really out of balance. Like all somebody does is play games on their smartphone all the time. So you probably need some kind of radical intervention to kind of bring them back to try to understand about how to use it in another type of, of way, you know, um, around communicating with other human beings, for example. But, you know... Uh, you know, I think that's one of the things that, you know, really came out of the looking at the silences, the PhD, working with my friends, being in the Buddhist environment and, and all these different things that influence how we live, that um, keeping a sense of where the middle way is, you know, if, if, if this is a world where things are out of balance, there's disharmony, we feel disquietude inside ourselves, you know, that being able to connect with that maintaining awareness of that it's something about then well how do we act what do i do next and when i look at the world around me you know what they would say my burmese friends would say they would talk about good though about goodwill is like how do you address that stuff but from a when your intention or your motivation is is to sort of bring a situation where it's going to be somehow improve things be better for most people and that includes yourself right being part of that you know so is this an academic literature or is it something people can find on a bookshelf at some point or well if you go onto my website <laughs> actually let's probably before you jump in with it yeah. we're kind of at the end of the yeah the, the podcast so maybe a good time to well first thanks dr Yoxon. <laughs> it it's right all right, you time. can call me Matt. It's fine. <laughs> Cheers, Matt. Good to chat to you. Not that we haven't chatted before, but um, where can people find out a bit more about you, about your writings, things you're doing? Okay. So I have a website, uh, .com, Um And there it's got some details about my current projects, the past projects that I, I've, some of them that I've mentioned and others that I haven't. Um, and also details about publications. Um, I have a short piece going into the Routledge Companion of Theatre and Politics, first edition. It's about 82 contributors worldwide talking about the state of theatre and politics now. Um, and there is a short piece about the Chin project there, working with my colleagues, uh, my, my Bama colleagues from Yangon, and how this idea of a theatre of the middle way arose in a tea shop uh, there. That short expression there's a lot of stuff in that article which is in my phd and the next job is really to turn you know that into a book which is yes i mean i'm writing it coming from academia but really i'd like to write it so that it's accessible to all kinds of different people who are interested in theater 
who are interested in Buddhism, who are interested in different kinds of social and political and public engagement, right? So try and make it, uh, yeah, kind of accessible to a wide, a wide audience. But uh, there's a little bit about that on on the website on your too. Website. Yeah. Cool. Website again, one more time is uh, www.dryoxall.com. Superb. So, uh, cheers. Thank, Let's do this no, again yeah. sometime. We could have chatted for hours longer. We've got to wind up. I've got yeah, and things to do, but yeah. One, I think that there are probably ways in the future to sort of think about uh, how some of the themes that we talk, started to talk about today, you know, how they're kind of connected to the project that Task is trying to develop too, and in terms of engaging. Well, different communities we'll do, we'll do in fair and equitable another, ways on another podcast we'll go into a bit more detail and and look at you know hopefully there's some way to work together on on some of your outreach projects and stuff so. yeah what's collaboration good idea cool over and out